0: Welcome everyone to another episode of the Hassle Wisdom Podcast, where we interview academic influencers about their research and how it can shape a better future. I am Deepak Mawal and this is my co-host Anik Ahmed. Anik, how are you?
1: Doing great, Deepak. I'm really excited about the, the themes that we're going to explore today.
0: Yeah, for sure. So this is part two of the launch series. So we've had one episode out already, uh, which was exciting in itself. And we've got another topic. But before we get into the the nitty gritties and the and the big stuff. Anique, what have you been up to? Tell me, tell me uh, some exciting stuff you've been uh, you've been doing. I
1: think the biggest thing that's happened last week was obviously DC fandom Deepak. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Batman trailer was awesome. Yeah. Wonder Woman trailer was good. Mm-hmm. Justice League was meh. Meh, I think
0: is the right. Intrigued, I'm curious about the Justice yeah. League stuff because it's it's gonna be a bit of a different definitely. The highlight was the Batman trailer. I thought that was yeah. really awesome. For me, I think what was great about it was having to see a trailer after such a long time. I think I've forgotten that like, kind of buzz you get from a new trailer because it's been-I mean, when's the last time we've had a big trailer come out in that in that kind of fashion? So it was for me, it was kind of exciting to just have a trailer come out in that way about. A property that i've got a, a massive affiliation with you the similar similar position as me um and it just was so cool it was it was such a dark eerie interesting take on um on batman and my favorite bit is uh when uh batman just just completely smashes that guy the guy asks him who who are you and he just smashes him up into bits he's just like yep yeah, this is this is it this is going to be the thing this is
1: what's going to take my
0: money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I take my money, take everything. It's cool. Just I'm ready. I'm ready. Now. Yeah, I'm ready to go. So yeah, that was, um, I think, yeah, I'd say that was the highlight of the, of the last few weeks or so. Yeah. But this week's topic is an interesting one, um, an intriguing one. And Nick, do you want to tell us a little bit about it?
1: Yeah. So today's theme is on business strategy and innovation. Um, it's an exciting and big topic. It has the potential to you know, create societies, uh, create innovation, create new products, create a better way of living. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a really interesting guest on today to take us through um, their views on business strategy and innovation. The 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 predominant topics, I mean, obviously we're looking
0: at business strategy and innovation, but our guest kind of looks at it from a historical standpoint and looks at the pottery industry. And it was such an interesting conversation to be able to talk about business strategy and innovation in such a way was really interesting and and we could really look at the fact that our our approach and our strategies can you know revitalize a a country, can help them develop, can energize cities, can help industries broaden their horizons, can help um, products um, develop beyond you know our our pre-existing ideas so it, it was such an interesting way of looking at how business strategies can advance innovation in a multitude of ways and, and the effect it can have not only on the product but the society that it's work, that it's operating within
1: yeah I, th- I think to all the viewers listening you know this is a, a fantastic podcast fantastic interview obviously if you want to play a game you know you could always just take a drink every time uh Joe says pop <laughs>
0: <laughs> well and not it's just it's Joe safe. I think we, we both say pot we'll, okay. we'll, the three of us say pot and pottery is quite a bit um, yeah. and I, I suppose what, I suppose that I, I kind of happens as, as we've listened to it a few times and realised yes. yeah we hear pot and pottery is quite a bit and there's <laughs> a little joke that we made you can pretty much play a drinking game uh, with the number of times that, uh, that the word pot or pottery was used so yeah if you, if you need something to make it more exciting I think there's definitely the prospect of making it into a bit of a drinking game but, you know, regardless of that, there are some still some really interesting insights and conversations that we had, not just about business strategy, but, but other aspects of, um, of business and, and the effect it can have
1: on the region that the business is operating within. Without further ado, shall we move on to the interview? Sounds good to me. Welcome to the House of Wisdom podcast. On this episode we have with us Dr Joe Lane and Joe is a lecturer in strategy at Henley Business School and also the program director for its international business and management um, course. He completed his PhD at the London School of Economics where he then worked as an LSE fellow prior to joining the University of Reading. His PhD thesis was awarded the Coleman Prize for the best thesis in business history at the Association of Business Historians Conference 2019. Joe's current research examines the organisation and evolution of historical industrial districts and clusters with specific focus on the role of knowledge and innovation and how they determine firm strategy. He's also researching the behaviour and strategies of co-located firms and their responses to fluctuations in the economic environment during the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, he is also a fellow of the UK Higher Education Academy and is currently serving as treasurer for the Management and Business History Special Interest Group in the British Academy of Management. Joe, thanks for being with us. How are you doing? Thanks for
2: having me. Uh, doing very well. Thank you, Anik. Um, yeah, yeah. Looking forward to to chatting with you today.
1: Yes, definitely. I think we. Me and Deepak found your, your research areas and, and the papers you shared with us really interesting and we're definitely looking forward to getting into it in this podcast. But before we start, um, we do usually offer, kind of ask a few kind of icebreaker type questions just to kind of kick off things. Um, Deepak, why don't you start? Yeah, sure. Okay, Joe, so we always talk about the House
0: of Wisdom being a real thing and we imagine it being like an awesome place to just chill out. Um, imagine that you're quarantined there, say a month or two, who would be the guy or put a girl that you'd wanna spend quarantine or lockdown with in the House of Wisdom? So imagine the you know, House of Wisdom's got loads of books, all the kind of um, um, educational sources that you'd want, um, everything that you need, um, who would be kind of the ideal person? Can be, you know, dead or alive, someone famous, someone in, uh, an intellectual, um, as long as it's not, you know, a relative.
2: Oh, uh, great question. I know this one. It would uh, definitely be Jimmy Page, uh, guitarist from Led Zepp, because um, I reckon in a month he could probably put me into shape in terms of getting me through the Led Zeppelin tab book that I've had on my bookcase for about two decades that haven't managed to actually play any of the songs from yet um I can see the guitar it's staring at me now um and if if I were in the house of wisdom with Jimmy Page I think over a month he could probably at least get me through the opening riff of Stairway to Heaven
0: brilliant at least Uh, It's brilliant. Yeah, I think there's some. uh, Both of you guys can learn from each other, right? And and I think Jimmy Page would definitely give you some awesome stories about Led Zeppelin and what they got up to in like the '60s and '70s. I'm pretty. I've heard that they've had some mad parties, and it was absolutely. It was proper rock and roll. Those those guys. So you would get some good stories from them for sure.
2: Oh sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd 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 enjoy those stories, and I'm sure he'd love to hear about uh, the history of pottery. and uh and 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 you know i can i can educate him in the ways of of 18th century pottery production so that you know we'll both win
1: brilliant and on that note, jay please tell us what is your favorite pop pop yeah. as in phistic drink. <laughs> that's for a separate podcast <laughs> but the uh, area that pop. that you're focused on around pottery what, what, what What's your favourite pot if you have
0: one?
2: Oh, oh okay. No, yes, I do. Um, and it's quite a famous one. Um, it's the Portland Vase. Um, and the reason I like it is, I mean, I, I, it's a nice vase and it's, a, it, it's in the British Museum. Um, it's a black cameo glass vase. It's not actually a, a pot, but it was used Um, by Josiah Wedgwood um, to create uh, a series of of Portland vases in earthenware during the 18th century. And my favourite story uh, related to it, and I forget the exact date, it's sometime in the 19th century, I believe. It was on display, so the original glass cameo vase was on display in the museum. Um, And there's a newspaper report that I read uh, some time ago. Uh, from that time, saying that somebody drunk stumbled into the exhibition and knocked over the vase. Oh God. Smashed into lots of pieces. Um, But the interesting thing is that Josiah Wedgwood's copy was deemed to be such high quality that it was then used as the uh, the kind of architect to then base the restoration of the original Portland vase on. So you get the double whammy of an interesting story of someone coming in and literally breaking a priceless vase, but also a anecdote that leads you into um, the skills of one of the potters that I that I research in my in my work. Just imagine the horror of everyone like
0: in that situation where someone's just knocked down and broken that vase i think everyone should be absolutely
2: horrified with that oh yeah 100 100 um it yeah, literally it's not
0: what
1: you want it's not what you want no
0: oh big nightmare there mm.
1: and, and on that note um i think this is a good time to get into the the main body of the conversation today so um Joe, you shared these, uh, your, your thesis uh, and, and the article that you, you put together, um, kind of covering um, your research into historical industrial districts, specifically the pottery industry. And um, what we found really interesting um, from both pieces was the, the big themes that you, you explored in there, you know, mainly around the importance of patents, um, importance of social and business networks. And, and one of these kind of themes was also around knowledge centres what could could you summarize for us you know, your your research in a few words?
2: Uh, sure. yeah. Um, it's it's essentially what I'm interested in is first asking questions like why do firms, why do businesses, why do producers start to agglomerate? Why do they start to to move towards centers of production, and then why do they start to become uh, more successful, or why do some of them start to become more successful? So why do we see, Industrial districts in places, you know, pottery in Stoke on Trent, or we have the textile industry around uh, Lancashire, or you might have Sheffield steel, Sheffield cutlers um, in that district. And why do we start to see that happening? Um, so there's a, a question there: is why do people want to to produce in that area? Is it something to do with Um, the natural resources that are available? Is it something to do um, whether you've got good transport links? Is it an amalgamation of lots of these different things? In short, it's it's, it's a lot of different things. But once we've asked that question, we then think, well, what makes those successful? What makes them uh, keep going? What makes them grow, evolve? How do they react? Do they react as a cluster? Do they react as a group of disparate firms? Um, And I think a lot of these questions we are answering through empirical case studies of different industrial districts. Um, So we have this opportunity with pottery in particular. This is a district that already by the middle of the 18th century is becoming famous in, in England and becoming famous across Europe for producing high quality earthenware. There are various potters there that have been producing some very high quality pots second half of the 18th century, you get a lot of the movers and shakers coming in, Josiah Wedgwood, um, later people like Josiah Spode, Herbert Minton, all coming from this area and generating a lot of knowledge, a lot of invention, innovation, and, and making a lot of pots that end up being sold worldwide. So when I'm looking at trying to answer questions around how do people view knowledge, how do people view innovation? why do um, inventors choose certain paths for protecting their 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 precious secrets pottery seemed like a really interesting case study you've got a highly concentrated industrial district six miles seven miles by about two to three miles so you've got hundreds of firms operating in a very very close um, close contact but all of these firms are producing innovative wares, they're developing new glazes, they're developing new bodies, they're developing new forms of pottery that haven't been seen before and they are, excuse the pun, cracking some of the bottlenecks that have been holding back, say, uh, porcelain production um, in England. So this is during the second half of the 18th century into the 19th. Now I'm interested in this as a case study and in the, the paper that I sent you, the paper that's entitled Secrets for Sale, what I'm trying to do is understand what do potters do when they are producing innovations or they're working hard, they're producing new knowledge. What do they do with that knowledge? How do they protect it when they are working opposite, next door, down the road from all of their competitors or sometime collaborators? So I'm looking at strategies that small scale businesses because this is the 18th century into the 19th they're still relatively small scale some of them are very large Wedgwood is is um, over, over you know hundreds of employees across two factories at this point but what are they doing to protect that knowledge and this got me looking at patents because patents are one way of protecting an invention but when I started looking into whether potters used patents, um, to kind of get the alliteration there, it turned out that actually Staffordshire potters don't or didn't patent much, despite being incredibly innovative, despite coming up with so many different new iterations of, of products, of glazes, of wares, they, they didn't use patents that much to protect their inventions. And I wondered why that was the case. So this paper and my research around that angle was really trying to understand that question I could talk about that a a little bit more um, in more detail later if you wish but the thesis more broadly so that was one paper that's come out of the thesis is really understanding some of the dynamics that occur when businesses start to operate in very close quarters when they start to operate in industrial districts and clusters so these geographically bound areas of, of, of of firms that are doing similar or related tasks Um, So I looked at uh, social and business networks. How important are they? And how important is the fact that you've got people face to face? You've got people going to the same places of worship. So there's a lot of um, dissenters and and, and Methodist chapels um, in the Stoke-on-Trent area in the late 18th, early 19th century. What happens when the social and the business life becomes intertwined in that way because the area is so concentrated what happens when you know industry is in the air as alfred marshall um, famously said the, you know o- over a century ago now what happens to some of those dynamics how are they important and how do they guide the strategies of people who are running businesses that are competing yet also collaborating in so many ways and bumping into each other um, across life so i'm interested in networks in, in knowledge what that means for knowledge how you protect it but also what that means for a district in the longer term. That's not a few words I'm I'm aware I've gone on, but um, yes, I've been locked down for some time now, so it's nice to talk. (laughs) Yeah, brilliant. Uh, Definitely, we can
0: definitely see the excitement there. I think one of the first questions I've got was, in terms of, I initially thought, for the fact that it's an, an industrial district, you would have seen knowledge sharing generally. Whereas I think in your article, you definitely discussed this idea of uh, there being a lot of intense competition, and there was a lot of competition and and almost quite protective about the knowledge that they have. So do you think like, competition is actually quite an important factor for kind of these industrial districts to really expand, to be really popular and and successful as they as they were?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really that's a really good question. Um, and And it's a bit of a a paradox, as you say, when when you look at a if you look at an industrial district or a, or a cluster and you see all these firms that are operating in very close quarters they have to compete right they have to compete for for, for market share they have to compete um, in in terms of pottery for access to raw materials yet it does um, there, there is a reward to collaborating whether that is through several groups of potters in in, in the case of my research getting together as a as a pseudo syndicate or a a short term partnership to secure longer term leases to uh, say coal or clay resources that could be in Cornwall, it could be across the world. Um, That kind of cooperation there is sitting alongside the fact that well, actually, they each have their own manufactory or their own workshop where they're producing their own wares, where they would have their own take on, this is my style, this is how I make things, this is my particular oeuvre, so to speak. So so in a way, what you've got is you've got this cooperative competition. Um, so you see what could be a paradox actually works very well in in the case of this industrial district and could, could be seen as very important, yes, for for clusters, competition. Um, we, we know that competition um, is, is, is generally good for, for the economy, it's generally good for uh, development, it's good for innovation and invention. Um, when you tie that into the fact that people are operating in such close quarters, so by the early 19th century, you've got about 80% of England's earthenware labour force are within this industrial district so you've got thousands upon thousands of people working for some of my estimates you know 150 170 200 firms operating in the early 19th century within this small six by three mile area now w- how do you how do you manage that you're going to have workers that will be moving between different factories that will for several years may work for one potter and then may find themselves working for another. You've got partnerships that come and go. So you've got this natural flow, this dynamism, and this, um, this almost fluidity between individual firms that are operating as a unit and saying, look, we produce this. Um, These are our goods. You are our competitors, but then four or five years down the line, the two head potters at those firms could be working together um, to create an entirely new type of product. So it's a really interesting dynamic where competition takes on different forms. Um, So you're saying, to kind of come back to, to where the competition is important, it's incredibly important, but it isn't just lots of different silos, lots of different individual producers competing with each other. This is competition that is, Constantly shifting and changing.
1: Thanks, Joe. That that you you mentioned one point there around kind of collaboration and and also about you know since a lot of these people are close together, the whole supply chain you know becomes a lot stronger. It's easier to innovate and 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 competition helps drive people in that direction. Do 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 you see parallels, I suppose, in that research you've done and kind of the modern city districts? So I look at London, for example, and, you know, all the banks, all of certain firms are all in one place, which, you know, one helps Mm. and the firms recruit those individuals and the transport networks, everything are built around that city or that area. Um, And like you said, it allows people to move around and still stay in the same industry and take their ideas into new or into other companies and help them innovate um, and and continue to try to be successful.
2: Yeah, yeah, I do, I do, and I think um, it's a really interesting point because there are two. So I'm, I'm a historian, so I'm interested in these concepts, these theories, and and, uh, and notions of externalities that, that come along with industrial districts. But I'm looking at them from around 1750 to around 1900, give or take. But a lot of what we know about industrial districts and clusters does come from. So Alfred Marshall in the first instance, looking in the late 19th and early 20th century. But today we see a lot of different clusters and we see a, a whole variety of clusters on offer. So you're absolutely right, there are parallels to be drawn. You mentioned around um, you know, having the labor force altogether, having this very specialized group of people who are skilled in various tasks. They may be slightly different, but as you say, in you know, financial district, Most companies are are geared towards the financial services and support roles and various connections there. But you have things, you you know, you have knowledge spillovers. So these externalities that arise in these clusters are the same that you would see in 18th, 19th century. Um, You see economies of scale because you've got so many firms operating together. So whether that's because supply chains become easier to manage or whether there's more bargaining power but you also see knowledge spillovers, and you have a very thick market for specialised inputs. So you get this, what Alfred Marshall would call the industrial atmosphere. Today, you you get similar effects, but obviously, you know, the financial district isn't an industrial district, but it's a cluster. Right? So some of the same theory and some of the same ideas and notions of what we can see in the very foundations of industrial district theory, where stuff is being made, physical products are being made. Today in the services sector, you still see that. Of course, you do see it in, in, um, in, in production centres as well. But, you know, you see parallels in Silicon Valley in terms of knowledge spillovers, economies of scale, scope. You see um, a very large group of specialised workers. And what you have is you have two sets, the contemporary or the historical, but there is this bleeding between the two, so it's really a, a spectrum, and they change over time. I just want to pick up on one other thing you you mentioned as well. Industrial districts and or, or or clusters can they can arise in different ways. So so there's been research from economic history and business history perspectives that look at say you know first or second order factors. So it might be that raw materials or natural resources draw producers to a certain region or draw an industry to a certain region. Over time, that starts to um, generate more and more output, generate more and more of these externalities that then start to become more dynamic and self-reinforcing. Geographical proximity, frequent interaction and exchange, socialization, then you get acquisition of specialized skills or innovation diffusion. And that all stems back to why, you know, that first question I mentioned, why do industries locate in certain areas? But what about, more modern sectors? What about IT sectors? What about sectors that don't necessarily need raw materials or natural resources as an input? I think here of yeah, Silicon Valley, I think of Silicon Glen <laughs> um, in, in Scotland, and I think more of the artificially created clusters, perhaps. I say artificial, It's, it's there's a sense of organic nature there, but it is a concerted policy effort to turn this into a cluster and I think they're two very different things uh, and I've gone off on a tangent a little bit so, so we can return to a more focused question but it, it's an interesting question that I think when you look at the distinction between historical clusters and what we see today or perhaps you know since the 1960s 70s they can be very very different that we're trying to observe or we're trying to recreate similar dynamics.
0: I think my question is kind of sort of relevant to that in terms of, it, it really seems like one of the, the key points to take away from your work is that that human interaction, the fact that these industrial districts are in the same community, are interacting on a day-to-day basis, that's definitely been a great springboard for innovation. And, and you've already mentioned that there's kind of a bit of a shift going on in, in, in contemporary society. So would you perhaps suggest that human interaction is still such an important aspect of innovation within various industries and even though we are pulling away from that human interaction I think especially you know with the pandemic that's sort of accelerated our activities and the the fact that projects are now generally online at least for the time being we'll we'll see if this becomes a permanent thing but you know in your paper that you do kind of look at the importance of human interaction is this something that you would certainly still push for or or, um be behind even in the day day day-to-day basis that we're working in now
2: yes yes in a word yes absolutely um i think yeah the, the the sense of human interaction is something that seems quite remote to us at the moment in the current context but it is something that we are used to and it is something that we that we thrive on in terms of of clusters and and why that might be important, and Venables, gosh, coming up to, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago now, talking about this concept of buzz and buzz being one of the benefits of face-to-face contact and helping to generate connections, build networks, transfer information and knowledge in a much more informal way. I think there's a lot to be said for formal connections and formal partnerships, and formal uh, ventures towards r and d invention innovation, but I think there is still a, a key role for the informal side, whether that is you know you, you use the term human interaction is it in you know the informal chats you have in the corridor if you share office space as you're going to get a coffee, the informal chats you have you know um, at a conference you know i you know the kind of the cliche that you know, sometimes some of the most useful conversations you have at a conference might be during the lunch or during the, the coffee breaks that bookend each of the uh, of the paper sessions, where you bump into people, where there is a sense of spontaneity, perhaps a sense of creativity that comes from uh, a chance encounter. I think all of that, if you remove human interaction, you lose that. And I certainly have found that in my own research and my own thinking. Trying to generate new ideas, I, I rely on bouncing ideas off other people, and I rely on face-to-face contact to do that. I struggled working remotely to try and generate new ideas in my research, whereas sometimes I'll feel like popping my head in the, in, in, through the door of a colleague and just say, oh, I've got an idea. Can I just discuss it with you? And um, you know, five, 10 minutes later, there's an idea bubbling there, and you can just roll with it. That, for me, is so important, and I think that probably expands out from the micro um, example that I just gave you in in my own experience, but but at the organizational level, we need to maintain this outward perspective rather than an inside perspective of thinking everything is is self-contained. We need to have those connections. We need to have those networks to get access to new knowledge that we don't have, to, to help bridge gaps or structural holes in those networks um that are formal or informal so yes human interaction is extremely important Um, i hope it will return at some point i i couldn't say whether it will return to to what we're used to i i have no idea on that front but i do know that i value it as a researcher as as a thinking about my research and ideas Um, i think that's why in higher education as well, we value the tutorial. We value the seminar to get people in a room and to get ideas thrown about, you know, throw something out there, see what sticks. That can be pushed out and out and up and up to the institutional, the organizational level at society. Um, and there are people far better place to, to talk about that than I, but in terms of learning, in terms of innovating that way, yes, we need human interaction.
0: Yeah, I do feel like sometimes we do undervalue the importance of human interaction, and and that even not even just in terms of looking at industrial districts and 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 how um, business strategies can improve innovation. It's just in the, in the day to day lives, even you know, in, uh, me and you, Joe, we're, we're academics, so in in that human interaction, just talking to another person and just you know, feeding off their, their interest, their energy, and just to kind of build and develop new ideas and, and the work that you have, you know, obviously, when we we're doing our PhDs, we had a supervisor, we go to our supervisor, we go back and forth, and, and we could really develop our ideas. And, and that human interaction is so important. And you make mention of tutorials too. One of the things I, I'm really worried about when, when returning in September and October is that lack of human interaction and, and having the students there for them to just have an idea for them to just talk about it and then we go back and forth and we can really develop and construct the or, or further construct the their the kind of ideas that they've got I think we shouldn't undervalue the importance of human interaction um, in all aspects of life and I think it's so important that you do make mention of that and, and reiterate that you know we don't want human interaction to go away that's so important we shouldn't just you know embrace being online and doing everything online in in, in such a kind of strong fashion
2: yeah it's 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 an interesting kind of development isn't it that we find ourselves in that having everything online i mean it it works it works to a point um and i guess we're we're constantly learning when it may not work as well and where so so you know this is a, an interesting case w- we're living through now is to find out you know perhaps we can find out more about what we gain from face-to-face contact and then thinking in terms of academic research and when we look at things like industrial clusters, you know, when, you know, obviously in the 18th and 19th century, social media, Zoom, Teams, it didn't exist. But we still see, um, so Josiah Wedgwood writing to his business partner, Thomas Bentley, um, in the 1760s, 1770s, you know, writing several letters a day to each other. So um, you know, Thomas Bentley was running a, a showroom on uh, Greek Street in Soho, so not, not actually far from um the LSE campus when I was when I was researching this um, and he had his ear to the ground um in terms of trying to figure out market demand um he would listen to what people coming into the showroom would say he would interact with the with the customers with the consumers with the demand side of the market and he would be feeding that back on a you know a daily basis to Josiah Wedgwood who was you know kind of heading the company in Stoke-on-Trent Uh, at his Etruria works, this this wonderful factory that he built, and to say things like, I haven't got the exact wording because I don't have the letters in front of me, but people are really liking this style at the moment, so let's perhaps increase the style. This was a failure, people don't really like to see that, um, but there's more demand for this. So that fine-tuning that in the 18th century comes from face-to-face contact. It comes from information it comes from communication so what you have there is an example of the cluster kind of spreading out a little bit so there's a satellite there's the the showroom in london that is connected through letters through thomas bentley and josiah wedgwood it's connected to the site of production and then that site of production is in this cauldron of creativity as as regina brassick has called it in um in some work she's done in her book imagining consumers which looks at this exact relationship between Josiah Wedgwood and Thomas Bentley. She uses the term a fashion intermediary. So again, this connection, this human interaction, this face-to-face contact between the producer and the buyer and, and how many stages that goes through and what and what that does. It's a really interesting example of why face-to-face contact matters. I'm interested in, in exploring that, that further in this, element of social interaction and and what that means. If you've got, as Alfred Marshall said, a cluster where industry is in the air. Okay, so industry is in the air, but what else is there? You know, I mentioned about Methodist churches and I mentioned about the kind of dissenting churches as as they're known. Are all potters going to the same services at the weekend while the pots are being fired? Are they bumping into each other? Are Are their children going to the same um schools are they um, using the same services in the marketplace are they how much is this interaction overlapping because face to face you're going to recognize people you may come to trust people or or not trust people and all of this is going on in the sense of these people may be your future business partners these people may be someone that you stump up some capital with or go into business with to produce a new type of pot to produce something so all of those dynamics are playing into everyday life and that's all from face-to-face contact that's all from this buzz this this interaction that goes on with being so confined within this industrial uh, district
1: i benefited greatly from the informal network and i i remember when i was at lse and i was at university of kent having spent time talking to you joe and talking with deepak i definitely learned a lot and, and my outlook has certainly improved from having the opportunity to, to talk with people in that concentrated environment, so to speak. I mean, wh- one of the things we are, we are also interested in, Joe, is how, how your research can be realised in the world and how some of these themes are kind of working in practice today. And one of the things I'm quite interested in is the kind of importance of social and business networks in respect of economic development. And I think you, you touched on it slightly earlier about, you know, Silicon Valley, even we could look at Silicon uh, Roundabout in London. And, you know, there are a lot of countries out there trying to create these concentrated environments for certain industries in order to achieve comparative advantage versus other countries, let's say, and in some ways using it as a as a soft power element to have these strong private companies uh, operating across the world. You know, what, what's your view on how countries could adopt those ideas um, in practice and and improve upon maybe what you've seen from from your research?
2: Mm, It's an interesting interesting question. It's it's one of those questions that often kind of terrifies me and also fills me with kind of joy because I get to talk about my research more but it's you know how, how do you make your research relevant for the modern times when you know sometimes you live in the 18th century? what can what can we learn i think in general if we're trying to or if, if institutions organizations countries are trying to generate particular outcomes whether they are externalities whether they are uh, you know whether it's competitive advantage vis-a-vis other districts clusters countries um, the more we know about what drives that and the more we know about what can drive that in certain contexts the better placed any policy decision will be. So, the, so think about regional policy for, for say, uh, you know, the north of England or think about regional policy um, for kind of uh, trying to develop some of these industrial clusters, trying to artificially create those or generate that buzz. The more we know about context in which that can organically arise or has in the past, I think the better placed we are. So if we look at specific case studies where you have a particularly long lasting industrial district. So the potteries mentioned from the middle of the 18th century, they're already known as a pottery producing region and really only entered the kind of terminal phase of decline into the well into the 20th century, whereby you don't walk around Stoke-on-Trent and there are chimneys firing pottery all the time anymore. But in the 20th century, you still you still saw that. So what can we learn from a a very long-lived cluster? Are you trying to create a environment where you get very rapid growth but then we don't have a plan about how to make that more long-lasting? What about if we start looking at clusters that have evolved over time and changed with the changing economic environment and changed with certain contexts? So for instance if you look at the potteries you've got a cluster that survived and thrived through a whole series of financial crises during the 18th and 19th century. It survived curtailment on international demand, on exports, survived the Napoleonic blockades, it survived all the wars of the 19th century that the British were involved in that was affecting exports or imports, it survived international competition I say it survived, you know, relatively, you know, it, obviously its performance goes up and down. But then we see we've got a whole load of markers that could potentially derail a successful industrial district that is based on producing a very specific type of wear. But actually it's survived. Why? If we understand that, then can we start to generate some knowledge to say, well, a cluster with these types of features tends to survive and thrive in these kind of Contexts. I'm a historian, so context always matters to me, so I, I think it's not necessarily as cut and paste as taking lessons from the potteries and applying it to today, but in general, academic research is interested in lots of different contexts. So I mentioned industrial district kind of researchers looking at contemporary, looking at re- the recent past and looking at the the kind of the far past, the 18th, 19th century. The more information we have, the better placed we're going to be. So I think that's the key: is more and more information and research, um, and a dialogue—a dialogue between uh, the researchers and 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 the policy. Um, it has to be informed.
0: I kind of see a bit of a similarity in, in some of my research too, because I look at international legal history, uh, and particularly when the League of Nations had its rise and fall. And I I sometimes do tend to look at exactly what are the factors and what were the, you know, the context within which it failed so that Mm. we can better understand where we're going in the future. And I think there's some sort of similarity there in in your research when you're looking at how the pottery industry survived all these big historical events and these these, uh, historical potential historical pitfalls. And to kind of gather from that exactly, you know, what kind of things can we take away to use in a modern setting? I think I think that's why historical research is so important in terms of letting us understand some of the factors that were successful and were not successful. So I definitely see the importance of 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 your research and why it can be so important to look at your research in terms of how it can help um, modern society improve its practices to develop you know certain industrial districts but I kind of want to now move on to kind of the second segment and and looking at you know some of the reservations we would have what when you look at kind of the industrial district and and how it, it it was so successful for for the 18th and 19th century what were some of the issues that what you say would be a bit of a concern or or some of the vulnerabilities to to the potteries industry.
2: It's a really interesting point. I I can think of one case in particular that what people do with the knowledge they create and the knowledge they use, it can help. It can help a district, it can generate um, growth, it can help stimulate more innovation, but it can also prevent further invention and innovation. And I think that's a key issue that any cluster or any district is going to struggle with is managing that that, that tension between sharing knowledge and keeping it secret what determines that the degree to which um, knowledge is shared between competing and collaborating firms so in an industrial cluster that's that's going to be of real concern so for instance in the pottery industry You have lots of master potters running their manufactories, running their workshops or their factories, and you have lots of small-scale partnerships between different producers working maybe five, six years, and then disbanding, and then becoming a new new partnership with someone else, for instance. What happens to the knowledge that gets created in those partnerships, that gets created during that time? The danger is that it, it either gets lost, it gets protected too much, It gets stolen perhaps. So you see in the pottery industry visitors to the pottery region if you look at um, accounts of um, so so during the 18th and early 19th century there's a lot of travel literature written across Europe where where individuals go and inspect various areas and they write up their accounts of their views of, of their travels. I was reading some from the late 18th and early 19th century that were visitors to Stoke-on-Trent, so to the potteries, and they had real difficulty getting access to certain parts of the factory or indeed to actually some of the factories as a whole because producers were so concerned about their secrets and their knowledge getting out, getting out of their own control. So in some ways you can understand this, these are outsiders to the districts, these are people who are not contributing to the district as a whole, they are visitors, they're coming in, they're trying to see what's in. But it also shows you that producers are are wary of their knowledge being used without their consent, without their knowledge. Um, Another instance is you see there's an R&D company of sorts that's proposed by Josiah Wedgwood in 1775 alongside another group of potters and they're proposing to set up a a sort of joint stock company um, whereby a group of potters um, all pay in a certain amount um, into a company that will be formed with the express purpose of um, inventing and and researching porcelain and researching new types of earthenware. And they draw up a list of memoranda, um, they draw up a a list of um, kind of rules that the company will have. But in essence, they, they can't agree on some of the finer points of of, of what this company should do, but they are very, very clear on what will happen to the knowledge that is produced by that company. It is not to be shared. It is not to leave the company. If someone leaves, they have to deposit all their knowledge with the company. They can't take it with them. There are all sorts of caveats there that really, in one sense, provides a, a, a point against, oh, industrial districts generate trust, they generate repeat transactions, there's this face-to-face contact. there's this sense of collegiality almost, but this is, well, if you have to be so prescriptive with the rules that you are putting in around knowledge protection, that trust isn't there. That trust needs to be marshaled in some way. It needs to be defined. It needs to be contractual. Again, you know, Potters there are concerned about machines being stolen and taken away. So there's this air of caution. There's this air of suspicion. And in the paper, I give a, an example of quite an amusing case in the 19th century that's reported, whereby someone starts leaking and divulging secrets in a trade, uh, a trade magazine. And someone starts publishing lists and recipes of glazes and bodies of wares. Alongside annotations saying, you know, okay, this one from uh, from Minton's is is really good, but it requires a hard fire. The blue on this isn't quite right. And suddenly this causes a whole set of commotion because the industry is not used to sharing that information. That is the gold dust. The recipes for your glazes that give you the distinctive look, that give you the finish you want, um, that is the secret that you need to keep. So I called the paper secrets for sale. Essentially, what, what is going on here is there is an unwritten rule that you don't divulge your secrets. Someone breaks ranks with a astonishing number of, of, of recipes, I think well over 100 by the time they finished publishing them. And that is a danger. That is a danger to the producers because that is their secret. And they've done well to try and keep that, keep those secrets from their competitors. And here we have someone under a pseudonym publishing all of these secrets. And that is the potential for for conflict, for mistrust. So what happens in 1775 with this research and development company, the trust just isn't there in the 19th century. The trust isn't there with the the rogue, I don't know who this person is, I've, I've tried to find out who they are, but with the rogue person publishing these secrets, there's a breakdown there. Something's going on that means that the unwritten rule is being broken. Um, and that's, that's a danger. That's a risk. I've got one more anecdote, if you want me to share it with you, or one more example, um, just around a pitfall of not sharing information. Do you want me to go through that?
0: Yeah, go for it.
2: Sure. So, so Josiah Wedgwood, one of the, probably one of the world's most famous potters, if you think of, of, of today's kind of big brands, um, Wedgwood is, is still up there. He is well known for being an innovator, for being a kind of a movement shaker in the pottery industry. He was operating during the, the, the second half of the 18th century in Stoke-on-Trent. He was also a socialite. He was astoundingly well connected. And we know there have been lots and lots of studies of Josiah Wedgwood as an entrepreneur, as a manager, um, someone who innovated in terms of how to run a business but also how to utilize your social connections. He's connected politically, he's, he's involved in canal agitation, he's involved in turnpike agitation in the 18th century, so he's he's involved in lots of different things. And one of the things he's involved in, he's a member of the Lunar Society, this, this, this society of uh, learned individuals who are wide-ranging physicists, chemists, great thinkers of the time in the, in the 18th century. And he's a, he's a member and he's an active member. And Jenny Oglo written a, a fantastic book um, called The Lunar Men, um, which, which focuses on, on that society um, and, and how they generated uh, such connections and networks and knowledge. But Wedgwood got a connection through that to James Keir, a chemist who did lots of things throughout his career, but also um, was interested in the production of glass. And through their connections and their conversations, James Keir told Josiah Wedgwood, well, I've got these issues with with glass production. I I, I need to be able to take out uh, imperfections so that I can make better quality lenses. So it's this annealing is the process whereby um, you remove some of these imperfections in the glass so you, you get a clearer glass. And Josiah and Wedgwood has a very similar problem. Josiah Wedgwood has a problem where he's getting cracks in his glazes. And, and imperfections in his glazes so he's interested in chemical solutions to getting a a glaze that won't crack and, and craze over time and the two of them get into conversation um, and Josiah Wedgwood actually um, cracks pun intended the solution um, he, he figures it out and he figures out how to get rid of some of these striata I think they're called forgive me I'm, I'm able to turn wrong but the imperfections in the glass uh, but it's taken him so long to research this. He goes away and experiments it in his laboratories. And he actually writes a paper for the Royal Society on this topic. But by the time he's figured out that piece of knowledge, that innovation that needs to take place, James Keir's moved on to something else. So James is no longer interested in, in that side of the glass production. He's moved on as a business person into something else. So that knowledge sits there. Um, and it's it's over a decade before that process is then reproduced independently. So that knowledge is created and then it isn't used. So that network connection where it could have flowed exists, but it isn't utilized. So is this network failure? Is this just happenstance whereby two individuals have hit a problem, one of them solved it, the other has moved on. So it works for Wedgwood, but it's now no longer useful for James Keir. So there's a potential loss of knowledge there because that network hasn't functioned uh, optimally, if you think of this in network theory terms. But it's just that I I write about it in much more detail in my thesis, but um, it's an interesting case whereby everything exists for that to work, but it doesn't work for some reason.
1: Yeah, Joe. I mean, that is a few interesting points, actually, that you mentioned in your response there. I think one was around, around the importance of patents and I think Deepak asked the question earlier about, you know, what what are the problems with having, let's say, concentrated industrial districts? And, and you mentioned about, well, yeah, there there are a few people who, let's say, are, are the innovators and, and may kind of keep those secrets themselves. And, and rightly so, because, you know, to them, that gives them power and that gives them the ability to innovate better than their competitors but also you then have the potential for monopolies or or even oligopolies, right? And and you'll know that and we'll both know that from looking, you know, studying economic history about very concentrated markets, and we know that's not an um, idealistic situation for markets to operate in. So from, from your perspective and, and looking at that from your obviously research perspective, do, do you think, you know, you, you mentioned about other firms in the pottery industry collaborating together mainly in order to survive but also in order to compete with these let's say senior innovators in that cluster do, do we need do, do you see that you know as a, as a as a good thing we need to encourage in certain industries And and I think for example like medicine where some people are creating life-saving drugs they have the patents for them they may be the only ones that can produce it do you think in those instances you need a government to come in and, and break that knowledge apart and share it with other people so you can mass distribute it?
2: I'm not sure on what the role of government should be. Um, I'm not sure up to scratch on, on policy um, and in terms of how, how governments should should react there and on what kind of policies they should be implementing. But I do think that Whenever you look at, say, a cluster or an industrial district or a group of firms. There are interesting things and useful things going on at all levels. Yes, there are some very large firms, you know, the whales. There are some very large firms that may, you know, there can be oligopolies, there can be monopolies. But there are also very small firms and there are also often lots of them in an industrial district or a cluster. So Jeff Tweedale's done a lot of work on the Sheffield Cutlers and has thousands of small scale producers in an industrial cluster that is astoundingly innovative and creative and successful. There are large firms operating alongside a lot of these small firms. But when we shift our perspective towards some of the smaller firms, you see a lot of innovation, you see a lot of generation of knowledge and a lot of um, production going on. So I'm not sure it's always a good idea to just be focusing on the very large firms. And I think any policy or any approach towards, you know, if you're trying to to generate growth, you have to think about the context in which innovation or creativity can occur. Yes, for some instances, capital requirements will be so high that you need very large organisations to be able to fund that you know pharmaceuticals for instance the R&D costs are astronomical to create new drugs and therefore you know patents and and licenses become very important to help appropriate the returns of that but in in other industries you know the capital requirements may not be so high so actually you can have very successful clusters that are based around smaller scale firms certainly uh, the potteries is one that has lots of small scale producers or what we would term small-scale producers. They are very large firms, and they're doing very important things. But let's not forget that an industrial district doesn't just make innovative products. It still makes the everyday tableware. It still makes the knives and forks, the the sheet metal, the iron, the, 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 the standard cloth. So it needs the innovators. It also needs the producers, and it needs all angles of that to be successful. Does that help? answer that question
1: joe no i think that's a, a helpful response and you, you're right to to highlight there is so many different layers that you need to look at not just the top firms and, and i'm obviously always looking at the top firms
0: and i suppose we'll probably move towards wrapping up this um interview and i suppose we always tend to wrap it up by really looking at the whole purpose of this podcast this podcast is called house of wisdom how ideas can shape the world and both me and Nick feel that your research has so many elements of that, and and there's so many things that we can take away from 18th, 19th century pottery industry, and you know shape how business innovation or business strategy can foster greater innovation. So you know just to kind of wrap that up, um, you know what are the what are the key takeaways, what are the key ideas that can really have an influential effect in your work?
2: Um, I, th- I think there's a couple. I think. We need to know more about what incentivizes invention and innovation and what kind of incentives. So, there's been a lot of work done by people like Petra Mercer on what incentivizes innovation or what incentivizes people to protect their inventions and innovations. So, I think the more we can learn about knowledge regimes, about intellectual property regimes, innovation systems, national patent systems, how they develop, how they work, the different contexts in which people think um, it's appropriate to start inventing and innovating or to spend money and time and effort um, to come up with something new. I think the more we understand that, the, the more we can be successful in implementing that in today's world. We need to understand the motives and the incentives behind businesses, behind organizations, behind the people that lead them. And the more case studies we have, and the more context in which we can see that process over time, I think the more equipped we are. So I think that's a real, a real takeaway is learning about what incentivizes one inventive activity. And we can look back to the industrial revolution for that, and we can look beyond, and we can, and we can, we can look at everything that's happened since then, but we can also look at individuals. So my own work, looking at individual small scale firms that are going into partnerships, I'm trying to understand what motivates people to behave in certain ways under certain economic conditions. So whether it's a downturn in in the market, whether it's a trade embargo, whether it's a sudden financial crisis, how do people react and can we expect, or can we help to incentivize people to react in certain ways going forward? So anyone reading my work would hopefully see some ideas there or some concepts that are being further refined that may then, they being experts in, in contemporary policy or contemporary research, would be able to forward. And I think that the dialogue needs to happen. There has to be communication between people doing research in one time to another, in one concept to another, and I think the context in which I find myself at the moment at Henley Business School is a a great environment for that, because I work alongside other business historians, I work alongside strategists, uh, people who are international business scholars, uh, people working on contemporary clusters, so there's this whole, again, buzz, face-to-face contact and ideas floating around, and we all come from different areas of expertise, but we're all interested in in similar ideas and we can see where we can take bits and bobs um and pull them together into something that's useful so i think that dialogue has to happen and hopefully my research is a step forward in making that happen in making the 18th century you know this particular context relevant
1: joe thanks for joining us and we hope you will uh, join us again
2: absolutely anytime thanks it's been uh, it's been a great chat, I really enjoyed it.
0: So that was the episode with Joe, uh, Dr. Joe Lane, um, about innovation in um, the business world or business strategy innovation. Some really interesting things that we could take, for, take away from it, I feel. There's a lot, of, a lot of ideas, a lot of themes that I found really interesting, especially after reflecting on it, that I definitely thought
1: has a lot of value in, in the modern day discussion. Yeah, I agree with you Deepak. There were some uh, really interesting themes that he explored in his papers and there were two, two, two themes that I really thought um, would be interesting to explore further on. One, one around kind of building concentrations um, of certain industries and you know bringing all the workforce, bringing all of the intellectual capacity into one area to really develop big ideas. And, and we see that today in some countries, and, and even in the U.K. with silicon roundabout, we can think about it in terms of the Silicon Valley in the U.S. and so on. And, w- and one of the other themes that I really um, thought was interesting was that concept of competition theory, where you kind of talked a little bit about how there was a kind of, um, let's say, separation between the high-performing potterers. Is it is Maybe that's the word potterers? or I pottery- think it's potterers. I would say potters. Potterers. Or potters? Probably potters. Potters. So, um, okay. <laughs> something along those so lines. H- High-performing potters and some of the ones that were breaking away and how some were using patents mm-hmm. to kind of you know, safeguard their, their secrets. Yeah. And, and that kind of concept of kind of monopolies or oligopolies and duopolies even. Um, so, so I definitely think there was a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of things that are worth exploring further um, after listening and, and talking with um, Joe. One little funny thing,
0: Joe and Joe is talking about um, how the, the competition based on it, a uh, side of things, how there's collaborations and competitions. i got a real um, Godfather vibe about it. I just imagine like, the Godfather like like setting of the pottery world where you've got all these like dons of the, of the pottery world and they'll, and they'll have like, a round table and meeting and they'll be like, so what can you do for me? What kind of pop yeah. can you show me so they' like <laughs> I do, I, 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 when he said that I just I don't know why that popped up in my head
1: um it, it does sound like there was uh some mafia yeah some what have you got mafia me? during that period yeah
0: exactly um, um, so and I think some one the other thing that I kind of was intrigued by was the uh, the idea of community being such an important thing because Joe mentioned it quite quite a fair bit about how these obviously these potterers or potters are in close connection are hanging out they're going to the sermons they're going to church at the same time they're in connection on a day-to-day basis and and there's a hub that's been created their families that are together and how important business can be for a community it can create a community around the business i think it shows kind of some of, the, some of the important kind of human elements to, to business and how important business can be for regions and for certain cities or, you know, areas. And that's why I think certainly this approach to business innovation is, is something you would encourage.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting point, actually, when you think about it in the current context where people can't be concentrated in one area anymore. And yet, do we... I mean we don't have the evidence yet of whether that's worked or not it's only been like three or four months of kind of lockdown let's say but it'll be interesting to see how whether we can still achieve that level of concentration of ideas even though everything's become decentralized like the human interaction part anyway
0: yeah
1: because all of a sudden you know before the kind of idea was some country or state or some local city would encourage kind of be actors to come to that town to set up their business and they'll give them certain incentives to encourage that but when you in some way now can run a whole business from your home virtually without even coming to that city you know it, it does yeah. pose the question whether whether that that kind of approach still is works what is necessary let's say um and so you know i don't have the answer but it would be interesting to see how that plays out over the next year or two years you know post this covid event
0: yeah on on reflection i kind of wish we did ask him about that because he was certainly a strong yes. advocate for that human interaction that human touch but maybe it's almost a bit nostalgic to a certain degree because you maybe could you, could you maybe say that like, it's a bit nostalgic and maybe not realizing that you know the world that we're in right now we don't know like you say we don't know the potential of it really we've only had a, what, five months of of having to work so heavily in on the online um landscape and you know i'd give the example of us i mean we've created this podcast the the, the person doing our music we've never met i have no idea what he looks like um my friend who's done the kind of um the, the graphic designing and the logos. You've never met him. I don't even, I, I think he might have, no, you might, no, I think you met him once for my birthday, um, but you what? I, I don't think you'd recognize him. You wouldn't even know people. who he was. So so, so, you never met him. We've actually, so we've never met Andre um, who, who we did the episode on, on Big Data. We've never met him in person. We've only met him online, but we've had meaningful conversations. Even example with Joe, I've never met Joe in person. But we've had some meaningful good discussions we've created a a podcast we've started a series here and we've not had that human interaction so yeah i I, I, i'm with him and i stand by what i said in the in the interview and in the fact that human interaction is so important because that energy you can have in a room where you could just spitball off each other and Mm -hmm. like you said you could go to a conference um or you have like a meeting with your clients or, or, or meeting amongst your, amongst your colleagues, you can really create some interesting and important ideas. But let's not downplay the potential of the contemporary setting and, and, and the way we're working in today's yeah. world.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think, I think we need to wait for the evidence to see how successful companies are or universities are you know, running their whole operation over and online. Kind of capability i think from my perspective maybe like you said slightly nostalgic in one way that yeah my i, I always like being in an office with people you know the role i do it's about building consensus it's collaborative and it's very hard for me personally to kind of corral people and kind of go through ideas all over a team's meeting or a zoom meeting right like you want to sit in a room you want to have a whiteboard, you want everyone to contribute um And I I do think, I do think there are definitely benefits and you definitely remove, I I feel from just these last three months, remove that concept of groupthink where Mm -hmm. you may have certain dominant personalities in the room that lead thinking for everyone else. Whereas when you're online, you don't have that intimidation or that kind of unease that you may get if everyone's sitting in a room. And, And I have felt that more people have been more forthcoming with their ideas um and, and thoughts than before so i'm so seeing a different kind of benefit from from this um kind of this this working arrangement uh, see i'm actually quite intrigued about
0: how that'll affect so when i start teaching again whether i have those students that are sometimes a bit um intimidated by the 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 more vocal students whether they're a bit more um, or less scared to actually talk in class. I, I wonder if that actually happens in, in the tutorial or in the teaching setting too. So it's, it, yeah, we don't know yet, right? So I think I think, I think, think what Joe's in, uh, research does remind us is don't forget it. Uh, human interaction is important, but let's not be so tentative of, of the world that we're going in. I think it's actually kind of interesting within the um, launch series that we've got two kind of different um, perspectives. We've got Andre who's kind of really embracing the future and what the future's got for us and and Joe kind of reminding us of the importance of of our traditional forms of business interaction or development um, or strategies it's I think it's kind of a nice um, dichotomy there in, in that sense
1: yes Deepak definitely and um, I, I think what Joe's Joe's done is Joe's historical research has has kind of just brought to light what key things people were doing during that time that made those kind of things successful. And as we look forward or as we look at infrastructure or structures today, you know, what could we be taking from the past mm-hmm. and thinking about how we could use that to improve what we're doing today? Yeah. So, so um yeah i, I left with uh, it's weird because I, I know his research was all about pottery and use as case study but i left with so many big ideas and big themes about what his research means for kind of you know um city planning yeah or you know how we want to encourage innovation yeah or how we develop countries how, how do we create comparative advantages and it's weird because I, I do again you know, i know it was about pottery but the ideas though, the themes that were going through my head that he triggered through his work was just, it feels like there's no connection when you look at it on the surface, but when you do read through his detail and read through the paper, there's so many things that come out to you. Um, and so, yeah, credit to Joe, and I can see why he's been winning various prizes. And, um, you know, we, we should tell all of you that Joe, Joe has a book coming out. Yeah. And um, we'll drop the link to, to um, you know, we'll drop it in the description. Um, but definitely something if you're interested in his work, and you want to learn more about what he does, you know, check out his bio on the Henley Business School website and, and obviously pick up his book.
0: Um, yeah, and, and I think we'll give kind of the list of the um, yes. articles that we covered and we, that we read of his to kind of get us prepped for the okay. interview. Uh, one little kind of final takeaway I'd say about Joe's research is, the way I look at it is it's kind of a springboard for critical discussions or critical analysis of of what's going on. I think having that data there, having that information about this world, about this period in time, we can then start engaging with it and having some critical assessments. And I think that's what we've done um, with this interview and in our reflections on the interview is is kind of what are the takeaways that we can then transfer and use and utilize in modern day business strategy for innovation and even in other walks of life i think that's what i i see the value for that sort of historical research kind of historical research that, that joe's doing in creating that spring or springboard for the critical assessment that we're having now yeah i think that's a, probably a good point to wrap up this episode really um uh, an episode i think took us in a different way a different place and um, but still a good pace nonetheless so what are the little things that we need to remind our listeners about check us out on instagram house of wisdom podcast no spaces no capitals on twitter how podcast so h-o-w-w podcast and check out the website um you get all the information there about the people with it that we're interviewing the, the the reading materials and just kind of information and obviously the um the episode itself. Check us out on Spotify and the other various um platforms that you can list the podcasts on. Anik, I think you've got one thing to
1: say. On that note, good night and good luck. See you next time.